The U.S. criminal justice system has been the subject of much controversy in the last few decades. All too often, as the conversation progresses, emotions swell, temperatures rise, and productive dialogue all but disappears as people retreat to partisan talking points. And all of this often leaves Bible-believing, neighbor-loving Christians frustrated and confused, unsure as to what problems really exist and what it might look like to address them. Today, I'm excited to sit down with Matt Martins, an experienced lawyer who has spent years working as both a criminal prosecutor and as a defense attorney. In our conversation, he sets forth a distinctly Christian vision of criminal justice, highlighting how the great commandment, loving God and loving neighbor, should inform our approach to both the victim and the accused. He also walks through a number of specific issues related to the criminal justice system, including plea bargains, the right to counsel, the death penalty, and the prevalence of wrongful convictions. Matt Martins is a trial lawyer and partner at an international law firm in Washington, D.C. He spent the bulk of his legal career practicing criminal law, both as a federal prosecutor and as a defense attorney. He also served as a law clerk to Chief Justice William Rehnquist at the United States Supreme Court. His new book with Crossway is called Reforming Criminal Justice, a Christian Proposal. Let's get started. Well, Matt, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast. Thanks for having me. So you have a really fascinating bio, if I, if I do say so. Thank you. You received a law degree from the University of North Carolina Law School. You then went to Washington, D.C. and clerked for the Supreme Court Justice William Rehnquist, who was Chief Justice at the time that you were correct. clerking for him. Is that correct? correct? Yeah. And then you worked as a federal prosecutor for nine years and then as a criminal defense attorney for 11 years. You've done lots of pro bono work, especially around issues of religious liberty, right. and actually were uh, working on behalf of a number of churches during COVID, pushing back against government closure mandates. You've done a lot, and on top of all of that, you have a master's degree in biblical studies from DTS, Dallas Theological Seminary. Yep. So I wonder if you could just give us a sense for what are your interests? How, how, how do all those things come together to form who you are today? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I mean, I guess if you had asked me in high school what I was going to be, I thought I was going to be a doctor. Huh. I was a science and math person. I did not like English. I did not like writing. I, I liked reading as a kid. I did a lot of reading. I was it, w- remarkably, and I told my kids this recently, I was terrible at public speaking in college. <laughs> my worst grade, and it was a generous grade, uh, was intro to public speech. Wow. And... So now it's weird that years later I make a living speaking, reading, and writing. And, and maybe in some of the most high-pressure contexts that yeah. you can imagine. Yeah. A lot of it's like impromptu speaking yeah. <laughs> and uh, curveball questions and unexpected moves by witnesses. Yeah, so it's a, it's a weird – when I look back, it's kind of a strange thing. People ask me, how did you decide to be a lawyer? I actually have no memory of that. I, I do remember in early years in college – looking at law schools like I would get back then you couldn't go on the internet because there wasn't any internet that anybody used you'd actually order books like pamphlets from you'd call up a law school and say could I have a copy of your admissions materials you know they'd send it to you and I'd have the stack in my windowsill and I remember that you know first or second year in college I have no memory of how I went from wanting to be a doctor to wanting to be a (laughs) lawyer but I've loved it. For, I've been a lawyer now for 27 years. My last weekend was the 27th anniversary of my graduation from law school. And it's been a great job. It's been mm. challenging. It's been interesting. 
it's given me opportunities to help people. Uh, it's been given me opportunities to serve the community and the country. It's been given me opportunity to help churches, as you mentioned, during the COVID uh, litigation over church shutdown. So it's been rewarding in every respect, but I don't, I don't really remember how I ended up on this path. Yeah. Uh, but looking back, I'm glad I did. So what does your day job look like today? <laughs> so during COVID, my wife and kids got some visibility into that because everybody's working from home. And their observation is true, which is I spend most of the day on the phone huh. or now Zoom uh, doing one call after another or responding to emails. <laughs> it's very little of what people think lawyers do, which is going to court. Uh, so much of lawyering, at least the type that I do, is outside of court. It's negotiating with the government. It's telephone calls with the government. It's witnesses, interviewing witnesses to understand the facts. It's reviewing the underlying documents to try to understand the case. So my day-to-day -day is a lot of phone calls. I mean, I'd probably spend two-thirds to half to two-thirds of the day on the phone wow so one, no, nobody's making a tv show about that <laughs> not not quite as compelling uh, tv drama there yeah so i want to go back to one thing uh from your bio that i find interesting that i had a question about so you started your career after clerking uh for the a couple different judges you started your career as a prosecutor yeah a federal prosecutor so you're you're on the uh, the side looking to potentially jail execute execute yeah criminals and then you made a transition nine years later to the, the defense side. Yeah. Uh, what prompted that change? And then did that play a role in kind of maybe changing the way you were viewing how our criminal justice system works? I actually spent a couple years as a, after clerking, I spent a couple years as a defense lawyer, maybe two years in private practice as a very young junior attorney. And then I went into the Justice Department during the Bush administration and thought I would go for a couple years and ended up staying for nine years. Mm. And is that common for people to kind of bounce between prosecution and defense? It's certainly the case that very is very common for people who are defense lawyers to have served some time as a prosecutor. I think actually one of the real failures of our system is that we view being a prosecutor as a training opportunity to become a defense lawyer. And oh, it's like the most important, some of the most important decisions our government makes, we give to people who are learning on the job. Huh which seems entirely backwards, right? You ought to yeah. be reserving. If you were thinking about how would I design a system, you would say, well, we want the most experienced and seasoned and people doing that job with great judgment. And instead we do, you know, we hire people who are a year out of law school and say, you know, make these life and death decisions or, mm. or these jail or no jail decisions. It's kind of weird. Everyone takes that as normal. It strikes me looking back as kind of a weird thing that some of the most junior people in the criminal justice system are the prosecutors. Why, why is that? I think part of it is the pay. You know, the people who can afford to be prosecutors are people who are early in their career and don't face the expenses you face as your kids get older, as I know now with kids in college. And so I think that's part of it is that the low pay attracts people early on and people can't stay for long because either because of school loans or because of the pressures of life. And so it ends up being something people do very early in the career generally and do it for a few years. And so even then they don't get a lot of experience doing it. They mm -hmm. get experience, but they don't grow seasoned in the job and then they leave and go be defense lawyers. Interesting. So then is there anything about that transition that you made to defense? Did that, your 11 years of experience as a defense attorney, 
did that shape your view of the criminal justice system in different ways? And is that connected at all into to what eventually has resulted in a book where yeah. you're arguing for some reforms for the justice system? So I think that just generally my experience in the criminal justice system, both as a prosecutor and as a defense lawyer, led me to where I am in the book. Hmm. You know, the views I reflect in the book, it was of, I was in law school. I think people who know me in law school would remember me as kind of a law and order conservative guy. I'm still a conservative, but I think they would have viewed me as very law and order Hmm. in our criminal classes or criminal justice or criminal procedure classes or criminal law classes, constitutional law classes. I think that's how I would have been perceived at the time. And I think rightly so. Um, And then kind of life happens and facts confront you. And so I don't know that it's my underlying principles that have changed, but it's the factual, uh, it's the facts that I have to run through that grid of principles. Mm. And so you can't look at the exoneration rate, for example, and say, there's nothing wrong here. I mean, as a conservative, just if, if, just setting aside sort of my theological views for a second, I, coming at things as a judicial conservative or a political conservative, I would be inclined to distrust government. Yeah. Right. And I, I, I actually, that's a, th- that's a conservative right. ethos. Politically conservative. Like I actually think of it as, as the, a theological point too, which is I'm an Augustinian. And so I come with a very robust view of the fallenness of man. Both of those kind of lead me to that political view and that theological view lead me to a distrust of government, right? Distrust of power. As James Madison put it in Federalist 51, if men were angels, we wouldn't need government. Mm. And yet man, there are no angels to populate government. Right. So the challenge is how do you empower government while restraining government? Yeah. Which, is, which is the genius of the U.S. Constitution and checks and balances right. and, and all those basic ideas that undergird how Americans tend to think about government. Yeah. And so, so I, I, I come at, so I, you say back up to law school, sort of, I believed in those principles that I've just described. I don't know that I could have described it as Augustinian. I don't think I knew enough to theologically to describe it as that back then, but that's what it was. And then I am confronted with, look how much government is getting it wrong. Hmm. And so my conservatism kicks in and says, like, we've got to fix this. Like we should not, why are we trusting government with so much power without checks on it? Mm. So let's dig into that right there. What are some stats or metrics that you would point to that demonstrate that things aren't working as well as they should be? Yeah. So let's take exonerations. Prior to the advent of forensic DNA technology in 1989, uh, it was widely ridiculed the notion that the justice system convicted innocent people. Mm. That would have been scoffed at. That was a fringe kind of view. Yeah, fringe view that it happened at any material degree. And so then you have the forensic DNA technology comes on the scene in 1989. Barry Sheck makes it famous in the OJ trial, then founds the Innocence Project. And this has now sort of, I think, changed the public perception, both of the justice system and of the death penalty. So since Forensic DNA technology in 1989, 3,284 people as of this week have been exonerated, not all by DNA, 
but 3,284 people have been exonerated after having been convicted. I'm not and, talking and put on death row. No, no, no. These aren't all. These oh. aren't. These are not death row. I'm, well, some of them are, but just as all exonerations. Mm-hmm. So 3,284 people spent 29,100 years in prison for murder for crimes they did not commit. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about people who later got off on legal technicalities. I'm talking about people who got off because they didn't do it. So like the, the the evidence, the DNA evidence, made it very clear it was not them. It could not sometimes have been them. DNA, sometimes other evidence that came to light. Mm-hmm. So they're not all DNA. But so you're talking about 3,284 people who we convicted and then later on concluded, sometimes decades later, decades, like three, four decades later, after they've been in prison for decades, we realized they didn't do it. Hmm. 3,284 people spent 29,100 years in prison. And we're counting. Last year was a record year, 2022, 234 exonerations, almost one every business day. Wow. So now let's focus in. You mentioned the death penalty. So 8,000, I think it's 8,790 people have been sentenced to death since the reinstatement of the death penalty in 1973. And 184 have been exonerated. So that's 2%. So 2% of people we are condemning to die did not commit the crime. Hmm. That's the ones we know. There's, it takes on average about 15 years for an exoneration in a capital murder case to surface. Well, on why average. is that? Just because it takes time for you know maybe witness other witnesses to come forward, or in some instances it took time for DNA to develop as a technology, or it took time for this person who had been condemned to death to get actually good lawyers mm. who could investigate his or her case. I mean, this is one of the big issues is whether or not indigent, indigent defense is robust enough to provide people with a meaningful defense. What so is I'll, that? And I'll come back to that, hold that thought. But just to finish on the death penalty. So there's lots of reasons it takes 15 years mm. on average. So they've done statistical modeling to say, okay, well, not every case has been in the system for 15 years, or maybe somebody on death row dies before they get to 15 years, you know, just dies in natural causes. So they've done statistical modeling to say, based on what we know about exonerations, the 2% we know, if you extrapolate that out, what do, what's the likely conviction rate, wrongful conviction rate in capital murder cases? And the estimate conservative Z is 4%, hmm. one out of every 25 and how widely is that accepted among all sides of the political landscape? Is that a stat that, that virtually every attorney on either side of the equation would say, yeah, that's probably about right? I don't think anybody disputes the 2%. I mean, we know 184 people have been exonerated. That's a, you, can, you can look at the list mm. of the 184 people. You can go on death penalty, I think it's deathpenaltyinfo.org, um, or, or you can go on National Registry of Exonerations at the University of Michigan. You can look at the cases. They're, they're all listed there. Mm. Um, the four percent obviously is extrapolation. I don't. I think I've seen estimates higher. I you know I want to be more conservative in the statistics I rely on. So in the statistical study that extrapolated to the four percent was sponsored by the National Academy of Sciences, mm. um, and the group of researchers. I think there are like five of them were you know very credentialed, and so it seems like a pretty reliable study. Though mm. I'm sure people could dispute it, but, you know, we're all trying to estimate and make good faith estimates. Yeah, yeah. Any other kind of core statistics that you would point people to that kind of illustrate maybe broadly some issues that that exist that you'd want to point out? I guess the other issue is the degree to which the wrongful convictions involve some type of prosecutorial misconduct. In other words, errors will happen just because we're, we're human, just because we're fallible. And we could use all reasonable means, and you're always going to have some degree of error 
And that, to me, is much less troubling than error that was the result of some type of misconduct. Mm, intentional misconduct. Yeah, intentional misconduct. And when you do, um, well, again, when you go on the National Registry of Exonerations, you can extort the exonerations by various features, including prosecutorial misconduct, for example, or, or official misconduct, so police or prosecutorial. And I think it's like 59% involves some type of misconduct. Wow. So again, these aren't accidents. Uh, this is the result of people not playing by the rules. And so I, I think that, I guess the one additional stat I would throw in there is conversely, we know how little crime we solve in the United States. So only about 50% of murders are solved. It fluctuates every year, you know, between 40 and 60%, but, you know, kind of on average, only wow. 50%. That, that's surprising. I would have thought it was much higher than that. Yeah, about 50%. And then if you take all serious crimes, so murder, rape, robbery, assault, car theft, something like 10 to 20% of that group of crimes in total is solved. Mm. So we have a massive, I would say, accuracy problem in both directions. We are both under-solving crimes and misprosecuting people for crimes they didn't commit. Hmm. And so those facts, sort of go back to your original question, sort of fit in some ways with my distrust of government and said, wait a minute, you know, why am I trusting, I don't trust government to run the FDA, <laughs> you know, or the education department. I, I'm skeptical of whether government can be trusted, but why am I suddenly trusting them with regard to something as serious as criminal justice when all the statistics are staring me in the face saying mm. we have a problem here? Mm. All right. So that's some of the, the on the ground kind of facts and stats that you've uh, encountered as an attorney over yeah. the years. Speak now to some of the theological, you, you hit on this a little bit, the theological principles or ideas that have influenced how you approach this issue. Yeah. So I guess I, I would start with, I mentioned before, I'm thoroughly Augustinian. So I approach theology, I approach my understanding of Christianity with a view that man is all men, all mankind, all humankind is, are fallen and we are all totally fallen. doesn't mean that we can't do anything that is good, but we are thoroughly depraved, I guess, to use the Calvinistic term. So that that affects my view of what people do with power. And ultimately, the criminal justice system is an exercise of power. It's an exercise of delegated power from God. And the question is, what authority were we delegated? So you have to answer that first. Like, what am I authorized to do? The, the justice system is the yeah. use of physical force against other people. That's what it is. Nobody gets arrested without actual or threatened yeah. force, and nobody goes into a jail cell without actual or threatened force. And the jail you cell... You call it state-sponsored violence. It's state-sponsored violence. I mean, that, that's not meant to be derisive. It's just meant to be, be exp explanatory. Yeah. The state is sponsoring, is authorizing its agents to engage in violence. By, by that, I mean physically harmful force mm -hmm. against our fellow citizens. And so you have to answer the question, first of all, when are we authorized to do that? I mean, we just take it for granted. Oh, well, it's government. You know, the Constitution creates government. Yeah. Well, the Constitution creates government, but when did God authorize us to use force? Mm. And, and, and that, just to be clear, you, you wouldn't say he didn't do that. No, in fact, he did. Yeah. Um, but the question is when, you know, under what conditions, under what circumstances, within what parameters? And then the Augustinian piece is, and how do we protect against the abuse of that power, mm. even the legitimate conferral of it? How do we protect against abuse of it, which is inherent in giving that authority to fallen human creatures? Mm. And so that, to me, is the tension that I've tried to wrestle with in this book. You know, how do we use power rightly? 
what is it to mean as a Christian to use power rightly in the, in the context of a criminal justice system? And how do I protect against the misuse of that power? Yeah, it's such a helpful insight because I hear you drawing out that the Christian tradition, and by that I mean the Bible itself and Christian theology arising from the Bible, but even then the history of theological and philosophical reflection of Christians on the Bible, it, it does present to us these two things that are in tension a little bit. Yeah. On the one hand, God does give give right authority to governing bodies to exercise justice on the earth and to right. punish evildoers. But on the other hand, the Bible wholly recognizes the sinfulness and fallibility of all people. Yep. And so somehow we have to try to marry those two things. Yeah, and together. that's a matter of prudence. I mean, I think that one of the interesting things is that the Bible isn't a criminal code. It doesn't tell us how to precisely sort that out because I think the answer to that question will depend across time and space, that what is the right prudential balance to strike Mm. in 2021 America, United States, with all its history and all that entails and all its resources and all that entails and all its cultural biases and beliefs and mindsets, what, how you strike that balance between fallenness and authority might be different than in a tight-knit community in a third-world country. Mm, yeah. um, so I think that the Scripture gives us guidance, but it doesn't give us particulars. Yeah, right. Another thing that you highlight in the book that you really emphasize is that pursuing justice is a way of loving our neighbors. Yeah. You connect the pursuit of justice with neighborly love. Just unpack that a little bit for us. Yeah, so interestingly, the phrase, the command to love our neighbors as ourselves appears eight times in Scripture. I think it's the most repeated phrase in Scripture. And Jesus explained that it is the summary of the law, including, if you go back to the Old Testament law, the criminal law. That he said when you look back at the law, including the criminal law, you can sum it all up in a Mm -hmm. command to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so the question I was really wrestling with is, if we're using physical force, what does it mean to use physical force to love our neighbors? And not some of our neighbors. I mean, the whole point of the story of the Good Samaritan, where this phrase appears once, is that we don't get to exclude some neighbors from the neighborhood, even the most reviled of our neighbors, right? That's what the story plays on, that cultural bias. Even the most reviled neighbor in our neighborhood is someone we have to love. Mm. Jesus said it plainly in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, love your enemies, do good to those yeah. who hatefully, you know, pray for them, who despitefully use you and persecute you. And so there's not some exception clause that I, I can love the crime victims, but crime perpetrators are like, well, they're, they're carved out. You know, we don't yeah. have to love them. And so the, that raises the question, then what does it mean to love people who are doing wrong to others? Hmm. And is that different? Is that something different than what it means to love the people who've had wrongs done to them? Like, can I do both? Don't I have to pick? And so that was kind of what I was wrestling with is how do you love them both? Yeah. I'm struck that question, do I have to pick between care, love for the defendant, we'll say, and love for the the victim. And I think that is something, culturally speaking, it feels like we often do. It feels like... We're tribal. We got to pick a side. Right. There are tribes and we we, we have to land on one side or the other. And then there's a, a default kind of emphasis on one of those two camps from those tribes. But you're kind of saying... We don't have the luxury, perhaps, of that as Christians. We have to love both. Yeah, and so the question is, like, how do you do that? And so what I found is the most helpful analogy. Turns out 
it's a lot of Christian thought over the years that we can draw on, <laughs> was just war theory by Augustine, you know, and then others who've developed it after him, Paul Ramsey, Hugo Grotius, Nigel Bigger at Oxford today. Um, they've written on this question of, as, as Bigger put it, and, and Nigel Bigger wrote a fantastic book on this topic called In Defense of War. I highly recommend it. I've, I've recommended it so many times. It really, better than any book I've read, wrestles with the question of how do you reconcile forgiveness and justice? Aren't they in competition, right? It's kind of the same question we're wrestling with in, in criminal justice. But as Bigger put it, can love walk the battlefield? Hmm. Can you love on a battlefield? Do you have to love on a battlefield? And he makes the argument, I think he's exactly right, there's no carve-out that says there's certain circumstances under which we don't have to love. There is no, as he puts it, there's no absolute prohibition against violence, but there is an absolute injunction of love. Mm. And so as he, he and I corresponded about this, he was very gracious with his time, and, as, and he observed, and I think he's absolutely right, that war is really just an extension of criminal justice. It is different in degree, but not in different in con- not different in kind. It is the use of force to punish and repel wrongdoers, to, to punish, repel, and deter wrongdoers. And that's exactly what the justice system is on a smaller scale. And so the principles that just war theory is developed to think about when is it right and and when and in and in those circumstances when it's right, what is the right way to use force against wrongdoers? Mm so that we can love both the wrongdoer and those harmed by the wrongdoer. Yeah. So before we dig into a few specific topics that I, I, want, I want to hear you reflect on for us, issues that relate to the criminal justice system in the U.S. today, I do want to just talk about that term, criminal justice reform. Yeah. I think that's a term, that's a phrase that can come with a lot of baggage for a lot of people. Some people might hear that and be thinking, oh man, here's a guy who who wants to go easy on crime, wants to go easy on criminals, just wants people to kind of walk free from some of the most heinous things that they could do to another human being. Um, I know that's not what you mean. I'd love to hear you, though, articulate what don't you mean? What aren't you thinking of when you use the term criminal justice reform? Yeah. So the title of my book, Reforming Criminal Justice, is a play on words. It's the reforming is both reforming, but also reformed, Mm. as in theologically, because that's how I'm approaching this. So what I don't mean when I'm saying reforming criminal justice, I'm not referring to what people might think of as progressive politics. I'm not arguing for a progressive political position. I'm not even trying to argue for a conservative political position, even though my instincts are in that way. I'm trying to say, what is a Christian position drawing on the reformed Christian tradition and reformed Christian reflection? The most cited authority in my book is Augustine. Mm. The second most cited authority, I think, is Calvin. <laughs> uh, you know, so, I mean, if I went down the list, it's Bavink, it's, it's Nigel Bigger, it's Oliver O'Donovan, you know, it's Hugo Grotius. It's people who are firmly in the conservative reformed camp. Yeah. That is where I am coming from theologically. And I'm trying to say, drawing on that Christian ethical teaching and Christian ethical reflection, what does it mean to have a justice system that is consistent with what it means to love your neighbor as yourself? And then I want to change, I want to reform the system to reflect that Christian teaching. Mm. And that's so helpful. Well, what would be your, your word to the person listening right now who's, their suspicion is up. They, they, they hear you say that, and they say, okay, well, that sounds good, but I'm just inherently suspicious of any kind of conversation about all the deficiencies of the criminal justice system. Yeah. What would you say to that person right now listening? 
So I would say this. I've spent my life living, my, my professional life living in the criminal justice system. I love our justice system. It is revolution. It was literally revolutionary. It is. It made some astounding changes for the good in the history of the world. And what I'm asking is let's be true to those American principles because I think those American principles, in fact, those founding principles, in fact, reflect Christian teaching. Mm. And so this is not a, you know, let's throw out, you know, let's dump all over America and throw out, pretend like there's nothing good about our system. Our system's amazing as designed. I'd love us to live up to it. Mm. You know, just to take one example, we promise... This is, a, this is an amazing thing. We say to people, if you're too poor, we're not going to let this, the system steamroll you. Yeah. We're going to give you a lawyer. Let's talk about that, the right yeah. to an attorney. That's, right. That's, we all have heard that on countless right. TV shows. Right. What's, isn't that great? Isn't it working the way it should? Everyone can get an attorney. So I, so I love it as in a concept, right? This is a, an amazing concept that we say, if you're poor, we're still going to give you a defense. We're going to give you someone who will act in your interest, unencumbered by loyalty to the government. We put this in the Constitution. As I say to my defense lawyer friends all the time, my public defender friends, your job's in the Constitution. This is an amazing thing. The problem is we don't live up to it in practice. So just to take some examples, 1963, the Supreme Court ruled in, in Gideon versus Wainwright that the promise of the Sixth Amendment to a right to counsel if you're poor applied not only to prosecution in federal criminal cases, but also in state criminal cases. So 60 years have passed. This March was the 60th anniversary of Gideon. And yet the reality is there is no political will to provide a meaningful criminal defense to people who are poor. Why do I say that? The American Bar Association has been doing state-by-state -state studies looking at what is the caseload for criminal cases in various states. They looked at Rhode Island, Missouri, New Mexico, Louisiana. What is the caseload? How many hours would it take to competently, not expertly, competently defend those cases? And what is the number of lawyers that we have in those states? And what they found is that you need three times the number of lawyers that most states are providing. Or stated conversely, states are providing a third of the needed lawyers. Wow. So I mean, there, there's a story, uh, Louisiana, Louisiana is notorious for this. Louisiana jails more people per capita than anywhere in the United States and, and frankly anywhere in the world. And yet their public defense system for the poor is abysmal. There's stories of prosecutors, or, uh, defense lawyers, public defenders in Louisiana being assigned 19,000 cases a year. Wow. Six and a half minutes per case if you're working a 40-hour week. Over the course of the whole year. There's, there's a reported case where a judge described the fact that one public defender had a trial set for every day of the year. As the judge said, even a lawyer with an S on his chest can't prepare for and then try a case every day. You know, it's just massively under-resourced. And you shouldn't be then surprised that people get run over and get wrongly convicted when you're not willing to provide the needed defense attorneys. But who's going to get behind that, right? Mm -hmm. Who, what politician is running on the more defense lawyers platform? Yeah. And so it's a situation where our constitution articulates an ideal that I want us to live up to because I think it's a Christian ideal. 
And I explain why I think it's a Christian ideal, because I think having those lawyers is necessary to get accurate verdicts. If you give one side a professional advocate known as a prosecutor, and you create complicated procedural and evidentiary rules, and then you say to the other side, you're on your own with your high school education, what do you think is going to happen? That person's going to get run over, and as the Supreme Court said, they may be convicted not because they're guilty, but because they don't know how to present their innocence. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about another issue, another contentious issue, probably more well-known perhaps in the U.S., and that of mass incarceration. So you note in your book that the U.S. has the highest uh, incarceration rate of any country in the Western world. Uh, two questions. Number one, and that, set, that fact is often cited as this damning fact about the U.S. justice system. So two questions. First, is that a high incarceration rate relative to the rest of the world? Is that an injustice, and is that due to an unjust criminal justice system? And number two, if it is those things, what should we do to actually reduce that number? So perhaps the most uh, very frequently cited statistic is the fact that we have 20% of the world's prisoners and 4 to 5% of the world's population in the United States. And that is, is troubling, but, uh, but I think it doesn't entirely answer the question of what's the problem. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that you can, people say, you know, mass incarceration, and they cite that statistic. I cite that statistic in my book, but as I know, it doesn't really answer the question about what's the problem. Because what's often not mentioned is that, at least in the Western world, the United States has one of the highest crime rates. Hmm. So there's, a, there's also something else going on right. there. So it's not surprising that our incarceration rate is higher when our crime rate is higher. The, so there's a couple questions, like, why is our crime rate so much higher? Yeah. Why are... I don't think people are more fallen in the United States than in the UK uh, or than in France. So why is our crime rate so much higher? What what are the cultural factors that mm. are driving that? So I don't think that ultimately answers the question of, is our system just? Mm. That's why what I try to do is not, I think that those outputs, as I call it, raise a question. But I think you got to go back and look at the machinery to answer the justice question. And that's what I try to do at the book. in the book is go back and look at how the system operates, the machinery, to say, is it operating justly? Mm. And, and that's where you'd say that it's not necessarily just the criminal justice machinery that could be playing into these high incarceration rates in the U.S. There might be uh, upstream issues in our so- culture and our society that are also leading to that. I mean, I think almost certainly so. I mean, I think that that's why we have higher crime rates. So there's something else going on. So it, there's a question raised, and I think it's, there's both a cultural, like what's wrong with our culture that's driving these crime rates, and then there's also a, but even setting that aside, is the machinery of justice working correctly? Huh. And I'm not a criminologist or a sociologist, so I don't try to do what I'm not qualified to do, which is answer the cultural question. I try to look at the machinery. Yeah, yeah. All right, another, another really uh, related issue to that is the issue of racial bias. Yeah. And obviously, the topic of mass incarceration is often looked at through the lens of disproportionate uh, racial representation in prisons and jails and how that might be. And it makes me think of writers like Michelle Alexander and her pretty well-known, influential book on mass incarceration called, what she calls The New Jim Crow. Yeah. Um, so do you agree with that? Is there, uh, how do you view this racial bias issue, which is obviously such a, uh, a controversial issue in our culture today? How does that factor into this to you? So if you read my book or read my bibliography, you will notice that I do not cite the new Jim Crow. 
I've read the new Jim Crow. I don't cite it and I don't rely on it because I don't think she's correct. I think a better book to explain the phenomenon she's observing is by James Foreman entitled Locking Up Our Own. Um, Foreman is a, <clears throat> James Foreman is a professor of law at Yale, uh, was a former public defender in the District of Columbia. I always tell people, if you can read the book and get through the last chapter without crying, I will buy the book for you. Mm. I'm not making that an offer, an offer to all your re- listeners, but... <laughs> you might get some emails. It, it, it was a Pulitzer Prize winning book. It's wow. it's very good book. Again, I'm not a sociologist, um, and so I don't try to answer all the questions about race in our criminal justice system, nor is my book meant to be a book about race. I don't shy away from the topic when it is appropriate, because I don't think you can fairly talk about criminal justice in the United States without recognizing there are ways in which <clears throat> race impacts the system and the system impacts people based on their race. And so I, I try to be honest about when I think, when I'm observing those without drawing all the causal connections, which I'm not into, I'm not qualified to, to do. But just to take one example that I discuss in the book is, is, is race and the death penalty, which is pretty well documented. The largest scale statistical study ever done was by a guy named David Baldus, who is a professor at the University of Iowa. And he did a study uh, of, of a, thousand, a thousand cases, a stratified sample that they coded for 300 different variables and then did a regression analysis on to try to identify other things that were driving the outcomes in death penalty cases other than race. They tried to control for every other factor they could think of. And the conclusion was that at the end of the day, the race of the victim was was usually determinative or certainly if not determinative was impacting outcomes Hmm. so it's not the race of the defendant so much as it is the race of the victim meaning that you're more likely to receive the death penalty if you kill a white person than a black person that was kind of the the summary of whatever that was the conclusion which no one really contested Um, and as i discuss in my book there's since been released some internal memos from the court, the Supreme Court during the year when the case involving that study was considered. McCluskey versus Kemp is the case in 1987. And there was really no dispute that, that the Ball study was correct. And it's been affirmed, confirmed in subsequent studies that the race of the victim does have an impact on the outcome of criminal, uh, of death penalty cases. Mm. So you would say then you are open to the idea or even, uh, convinced of the idea that race is a factor in our criminal justice system that that does lead to unjust outcomes, but maybe not to the extent that you would use language like the new Jim Crow in the way that some have. I would be open to the fact, I agree, for example, that race impacts the death penalty. I'm open to the fact that it impacts other features. I discussed the race-based jury selection that is pretty well documented. But ultimately, what I'm trying to get at in my book is not, is the system racist? I'm trying to get at the question, is it just? Hmm. And it may be just or it may be unjust for reasons unrelated to race. Yeah. And so I, I'm trying to answer the question, is it just? That injustice may have a racial component, but ultimately I'm trying to focus on justice, whether race-based or not. Hmm. Let's talk about plea bargaining. You have a problem generally <laughs> with plea bargaining. First, explain what it is yeah. and why you don't really like it very much. So plea bargaining is... When someone is allowed to plead guilty to something less than the most serious crime they allegedly committed in return for a reduced sentence, or stated another way, sometimes a threat of a higher sentence if you go to trial than you would receive if you agree to plead guilty. 
So essentially a contract between the prosecutor and the defense lawyer to lessen the charge or lessen the sentence in return for a guilty plea. So as I say, uh, this is this is how, what I say to everybody who will listen. Everybody should hate plea bargaining. <laughs> everybody should hate plea bargaining because plea bargaining is premised on injustice. It is premised. It functions either because we threaten an unjustly severe sentence. So that or, happens. You'd say that that's that's one of the things that actually happens. Well, it's the only way. It's the only way it could happen. Either one of two things is going on. Either you're threatening an unjustly severe sentence if you go to trial, or you're offering an unjustly lenient sentence. If you don't go to trial, the, 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 otherwise, why would anybody plead guilty? Hmm. I mean, we have a constitutional guarantee twice in the U.S. Constitution to a right to a jury trial. So who's given that up? Play for fumbles, like go to trial. Like maybe a witness dies or falls apart on the stand. Like why would you ever plead guilty unless you're getting something? Yeah. You're either being threatened or you're being offered something. But the problem is, whatever you're being threatened or whatever you're being offered is either unduly severe or unduly lenient. So, okay, so we understand then why the defendant might be tempted to take a plea bargain. Yeah. Why is the prosecution offering one? So I think that they are doing it to reduce caseloads. So you it know. comes back to just like staffing. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think that, I think that that is, they want to, well, I think it's a combination of they think they're right. I mean, I don't, I don't think prosecutors are generally out there offering plea bargains when they think somebody's innocent. Mm. I, I certainly didn't observe that when I, you know, in the nine years I was there. I think you think you're right and you got to move cases. And so instead of funding more prosecutors and funding more courts, it's much easier to coerce people out of taking out of their jury trial right. Mm. And so whether you're a law and order, whether you consider yourself a law and order conservative or a bleeding heart liberal, I think you should hate plea bargaining. Because if you're a law and order conservative, people are getting off with something far less than they deserve in some instances, right? That's the unduly lenient offer. And if you're a bleeding heart liberal, so to speak, to use a term, you should hate the threat of unjustly severe sentences. So it doesn't, to me, it doesn't even matter where you are politically. You should look at this system and say, this system functions on an injustice that, that runs against what I believe. I think we should, we should fund the system in a way that can pursue cases to receive just sentences. I think that's how we love our na- all of our neighbors. It is not loving to a criminal defendant to sentence him to six months for a serious crime, like say child sex abuse. It goes without saying that's not loving to the people abused, but that is not loving to the person who committed that crime because it is not disciplining them in a way that will deter them, will stop them from committing this. They are being denied the corrective discipline of the law, and that is a failure to love them. Mm. So that raises an interesting question about the impact of criminal of criminal prosecutions and jail time and other penalties imposed by the justice system in terms of deterrence. Yeah. I think that's a conversation that people often have, and there's all, all kinds of stats cited that, that maybe call into question the deterring impact of the criminal justice system writ large. Yeah. Do, you, do you accept that? You kind of made that case right there that, it's yeah. a, that that's why we do this. Uh, that's how we love... Uh, our criminal neighbor in these cases, but what if it's not actually having that deterring effect on them? So I think that to be just, punishment must be proportional. To be loving, punishment must be proportional. 
And proportionality has a both a backward-looking content and a forward-looking content. By backward-looking, I mean we look back at the wrong done, and we say, what is the maximum we can proportionally impose for this? Eye for eye, right? We can't impose two eyes for an eye. Um, we shouldn't impose half an eye for an eye. We're, an eye for an eye is proportionally just on a backwards-looking scale. But, just, but proportionality also has a forward-looking element, which is to say the goal of criminal justice is to restore you. I, I think this is, is a critical point. We treat criminal justice as a way to banish you. Hmm. We don't want you back. We want you gone and gone for as long as possible. That's not Christian. Christian says, we want you back. And we will punish you to bring you back. But we will punish you only as much as needed to bring you back. Hmm. So I can't punish you more than an eye for an eye. But if something less than that will bring you to, to use a Christian word, repents, then welcome back. And so I think it's a different mindset to say, these are people made in God's image. To love them is to will and to seek their best. And what is best for them ultimately is to restore them to a community. Hmm. Some some Christians, thoughtful Christians, might push back on that and say, you know, you're you're articulating, yes, the individual Christian's uh, mandate as a Christian is to seek reconciliation to some extent, forgiveness, and even even restoration. But that that's not the role of the state. The state isn't given that mandate to actually seek forgiveness and restoration. This the state doesn't bear that burden from God. The state's obligation is to love. Because the state, the state is carried out by people who have an obligation to love. Interestingly, one of the eight, eight instances of love your neighbor as yourself is in Romans 13, where Paul describes the power of the state to use the sword. Mm. The state has the same obligation I have because the state is me. And what the state needs to do, the state actors need to do, is justice, which is to love. This is, this is really important. Augustine said that justice, and this is really the Christian conception of justice, justice is giving to every man his due. And what scripture tells us is what people are due is our love. In fact, that's the point of the love your neighbor as yourself in Romans 13 is that people are owed our love. Mm. And so to give people their due is to give them our love. Now what that's going to look like, what that love will look like for someone who's done wrong versus someone who's been wronged is different. But my obligation is, as I think, I think Bigger's right, there's not an absolute prohibition against violence in Scripture, but there is an absolute injunction of love, an absolute injunction to love. Mm. That's, what, that's the theory underlying just war theory, is that you must love on the battlefield, that love can walk the battlefield, and I think love can walk the cell block. I think love can walk the courthouse. In fact, I think it's, we're obligated to make sure it does. Mm. All right, maybe last uh, topic to, to get at related to the justice system. Uh, that's the death penalty. Yeah. Uh, you've, we already ref- referenced this, and you've already mentioned that as a prosecutor, you actually put someone on death row. Yeah. Uh, so, but your, your ideas, your opinion about the death penalty has sort of shifted over the years. Yeah, I, I describe the death penalty as the, the probably the most significant moral topic on which my opinions changed as an adult. And again, not because my theological position has changed. Um, I believe that scripture authorizes the use of deadly force. I believe that it authorizes the state to bear the sword. I believe it authorizes the state to execute people under certain circumstances. And I think it's the under certain circumstances that get lost. People can say, Genesis 9, 6, he who sheds man's blood, or 
Um, Romans 13, bear the sword. And, and those verses are true, and I believe them, and I believe they authorize the use of deadly force, but they are not the only verses in the Bible, and there are other verses in the Bible that put constraints around the state's use of force. And one of those constraints is accuracy. And I talked about earlier about the accuracy concerns I have about the death penalty. And another is impartiality. Scripture speaks over and over about justice being exercised impartially because we're imaging God who, ex- who judges all men impartially, as Scripture tells us. And I've mentioned before the, the statistics about race and how it infects the death penalty in the United States. And so we have a, a system in the United States where I have real, I believe the death penalty is morally justified conceptually, but in practice, we are not sufficiently accurate, in my view, and we are not sufficiently impartial. And so what I say is I oppose the death penalty as currently practiced in the United States. Mm. And I frankly, I, th- I think every Christian should oppose the death penalty as currently practiced in the United States. We can believe it is morally justified. We should oppose the fact that 2 to 4% of people sentenced to death are innocent. We should oppose the fact that our system says white lives matter more than black lives when it comes to whether we're going to punish people for taking one of those lives. We should oppose that as Christians because it's unchristian. And we should strive for a day, I think, where the death penalty can be carried out justly because it is, in fact, a just penalty. Mm. And that leads into one of my final questions. So Winston Churchill has this famous quote that I'm sure you've heard before. He said that democracy is the worst form of government except for all those others that have been tried and have failed. Yeah. And I think many Americans probably feel the same way about our criminal justice system, that no, it's not perfect. And sometimes it makes mistakes, even grievous mistakes, like with the death penalty, but that it's the best the world has ever seen, and that it's the best that we've, we've ever come up with as humans. And, and so to be critical of it like this is to sort of, I don't know, I guess ignore that fact or to act like that's not the case. How would you respond to that kind of a sentiment? What I, what I say in response to that, and it's a question I get frequently, you know, something like, isn't the American justice system the best there ever was? And I don't fight that fight. I'm not going to debate whether it's the best there ever was. I think it's the wrong question. I think the right question is, is it the best we can be? See, we're a particular people with a, in a particular moment in time with particular resources. In other words, to use a biblical term, we have a particular stewardship. I have what other people around the world don't have today and what most people in history have never had in terms of financial resources as a country, in terms of scientific learning. You um, talk about DNA yeah, evidence. Yeah, DNA evidence. It was unheard of, right? A hundred, I mean, even 25, you know, 35 years ago. So we have a particular stewardship. And the question is, I think the Christian question is, are we doing all we can do with what we've been given? I'm not 16th century England, and I'm not 21st century South Africa. I'm 21st century America, mm. and we are particular people with particular resources, with particular, a particular culture and a particular constitution, and are we doing everything we can, everything we reasonably can, to achieve justice as God defines justice? I think that's the question we should hold ourselves to, or to state it in, in uh, the Good Samaritan terms, are we loving our neighbor as ourselves as much as we can? Are we doing all we reasonably can to love our neighbors as ourselves? That's the question I want us to wrestle with as, as Americans, as Christian Americans. All right, a few rapid-fire questions to sure. end us here. So if you 
were in charge and could just snap your finger, what's the first change that you would make to the criminal justice system today? I would, boy, that's a, I have two sort of I'm wrestling with. Got to pick one. Well, I think I would adequately defund, adequately fund defense counsel. Because mm, that would, could have a knock-on effect. I think that could have a knock-on effect of solving some of the other issues. Yeah. All right. What's an interesting, did you know, legal fact that you think most people listening, most Christians would have no idea about or would find surprising? I think most people do not know that you can be held in jail for years prior to trial and being convicted of anything. Isn't there a constitutional right to a, quote, speedy trial? There is. And the Supreme Court has ruled that that's met at times by five to seven years in jail prior to trial. Wow. All right. What's the most memorable case you ever worked on? So... I guess the most famous case I ever did was when I was with the government. I, I was with the, for a while, I, I worked at the United States Securities and Exchange Commission, so pursuing civil securities fraud violations. And I tried a case against a banker at Goldman Sachs that was very famous. And if you, you Google me and Google Goldman Sachs, you'll find lots of articles about that case. It was on the front page of the Wall Street Journal um, on August 1st, 2013, when we won. Um, my picture was on page two in a big blow up. Um, so that's kind of the most memorable case. You know, it's one of those, you walk into the courthouse and they're chasing you with cameras and you walk out and they're snapping pictures of you. So Uh, it was a big deal. Yeah. What's a one sentence summary on your thoughts on 2022's Dobbs decision? So I, I am glad for that change, glad for that decision. I believe Roe was unjust. Um, as a Christian, I believe it was unjust. I believe abortion is murder. Elective abortion is murder, and um, I'm glad for the law changing so that the laws in the states can change. Hmm. All right, what's your favorite legal TV or movie where attorneys are presented in kind of a, a focused sort of way? Uh, a Few Good Men. Hmm. Classic. All right, and then what's... Or, or maybe My Cousin Vinny, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> two totally different genres. And then finally, what's, what's a Bible verse or passage that comes to mind most often when you think about the U.S. criminal justice system? So after, after studying, reading, researching for this book, I, I see love your neighbor as yourself in a, a new way. I see it as a, 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 a verse that's directly applicable to the justice system. I mean, when you, when you go back to Leviticus 19, which is the first occurrence, it begins, the passage begins... Do no injustice in court, hmm. but love your neighbor as yourself. Hmm. Um, the, the, the concept of loving your neighbor as yourself was rooted in an obligation to love your neighbor in court. Uh, and I think that that, more than anything, has jumped out to me, has been sort of ingrained and, and, few, and burned into my mind, is, is to see that God cares about how the authority he delegated is used against our neighbors. Yeah. Well, Matt, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk with me and and answer these questions that I think many of us have about uh, the criminal justice system. Thanks. Thanks for having me. That was Matt Martins on the criminal justice system. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Reforming Criminal Justice, a Christian Proposal. 
pick up a print copy of the book for 30% off, or get the ebook or audiobook for 50% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org. For more audio content like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with a friend and leaving us a review. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's Word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.